With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the Empire Rolls podcast. My name is Paul Mann and I'll be uh, hosting the show today. Well, welcome to the 50th episode. Uh, I'm amazed that we've made it this far, but we seem to be building and building bigger. Domination is coming. Well, maybe not. Well, sadly, domination in the footballing world from Reading Football Club is not happening. Uh, We are going in reverse. We witnessed, uh, I think, one of the most kind of soul-destroying and depressing halves I've seen from Reading in many a years on uh, last Saturday against Sheffield United. To help me talk about it, I've been joined by George Flood. Hello, George. Good evening, chaps. Nice to be with you again after what's been a very busy few days by Reading standards, I think. Very, very busy. Yeah, we're just ridiculously busy. I mean, who knows, in the middle of this podcast we were just discussing, if we get a press statement from uh, Lewis Castro, it's all it could all switch around very, very quickly. I've also been joined by uh, Neil Rees. He's mostly baubles at the moment. He's normally known as mostly bobbing, so it's nice to see a little bit of variation in his life. Getting festive. Getting festive, yeah. Are you feeling festive now? You are you saying that, that that game on Saturday made you feel joyful and happy? Uh didn't make me feel triumphant at all, no. no. Absolutely uh, far from it. <laughs> no, there was definitely no three wise men involved in that performance, was there? It was one. just sorry? Not even one, I don't think. No, not even one. Well, so moving on to the Sheffield United match. Um well Scott Marshall. I mean, bless him. He's been left with an absolute disaster zone, hasn't he? The lineup at the beginning, you can't really argue about the semantics. Uh, Sims came in and um, you just think, I I couldn't really disagree with the lineup at all. First half, I thought was okay. I thought we matched Sheffield United and I came out of first half and I thought, well, we've done better than I thought. Um, What did you think of of halftime, George? I sort of made the mistake of letting some rare optimism sort of wash over me for a change. Uh, like you said there, I thought we competed okay. It obviously wasn't the greatest first half of football we've ever seen from either team. But uh, I think even Chris Wilder said we were sort of sort of a, a touch quicker sometimes to the ball than they were. Uh, obviously, we got a little bit lucky with the two disallowed goals, but which were rightfully disallowed, I guess. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know, but the, the fear always was, and I think I said this at the time, was we lacked end product to such a degree that as soon as Sheffield United scored, you thought this is going to be all over because I just, I just cannot see how we're going to score at any point. Um, Yaku Mate, uh, even not having him on the bench was, was such a massive loss. Um, so obviously when he starts, he scores generally these days. Uh, and when he's on the bench, he came off the bench against Stoke and provided that real sort of focal point that we were always missing, uh, against Sheffield United. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we were then treated to sort of the usual second half fair, weren't we? I thought we completely lost focus and shape again. They looked really tired. Um, they just generally dropped deeper and deeper, allowed Oliver Norwood far too much space to sort of to operate in. 
And it just kind of looked like they were trying their level best to sort of grind out a nil-nil draw, which unfortunately uh, we're never going to be good enough at the back at the moment to sort of make that happen, especially with, you know, Liam Moore and three centre-halves missing. So, uh, yeah, it was sort of a half-time optimism that sort of quickly ebbed away, I would say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what worried me straight away as they came out for the second half, Sheffield United were out for a good few minutes before doing all that little bit of running around as they do, these footballers, keeping themselves loose. And we kind of sorted on, sorted onto the pitch for the second half. And I don't know, you could see the mentality of Sheffield United had changed slightly because, like you said, George, in the first half, they looked a little, they looked off the pace. I'm sure they've played a lot better than that throughout the season. And then you kind of, you were waiting for Sheffield United to score in that 15-minute period and they came close more than once, Gunter clearing off the line. And then there was a one-on-one that Jacona made a decent save from, from a defensive calamity from us in that period. And we just did absolutely nothing in that second half. We just were clinging on like a lower league team going away to a team trying to get a plucky draw and a home tie in the next round. It was just... It was painful viewing because if I look at Sheffield United, they went down to League One and they were there for a good few years and we looked at, down at them from the championship and now we're, it's a complete role reversal. Now we're that team and it's just depressing. I mean, the goals, Neil, what did you think of those two goals? It's just, they were coming, weren't they? As with most goals this season against us, they just seem to be typical red and goals and that this point of failure everywhere in them. I mean, Balder was really kind of unlucky for, for the own goal, you could say, but um, we kind of pushed our luck with the, the offside uh, decisions in the first half, which, you know, as George says, rightly so, they, they were offside and the last one, everyone just seemed to be watching the ball uh, before Billy Sharp, obviously, uh, poked it in. But, you know, Sheffield were, were, were dominating the game to such an extent that it almost looked like we had nine or ten men as opposed to their uh, seemingly 12. We just, just seemed to be outgunned everywhere, whichever formation they, they chose to switch. And they'd switch many times. Um, they, they just seemed to counter us so well. We, we didn't have a single answer. Um, apart, you know, as you say, in the first half, we, we managed to get some two-on-ones in wide areas. But um, but nothing came of it at all. We always seemed to be a man short in an area where we wanted the ball to go to. Um, McNulty looked absolutely lost. Probably not much fault of his own, really. He just didn't get any any support going to him. I think Renamoto was trying to to get up with him, but because we played four four two, we were creating so much space as well behind us. So he was always going to have a struggle. And, We'd be playing three in midfield for as long as I can remember. So a switch to two, I don't think really did us any favours at all in the long run. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I must say in the first half, I thought Rinomoto and Bakuna were two of our best players. Yeah. They seemed to be actually, I wouldn't say dominating midfield at all, but they, it was parity. Let's put it that way. So that yeah. was fine. But as George said earlier, Norwood just overtook the game in the second half, really. We were just sitting off so much. And we all know from watching him from years, he can ping passes around. I mean, we can you know, criticise his set pieces as Reading fans. We all know that. But if you're going to let him just have space and time, he'd just pass, 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 pass continuously. and have no problem with that at all. You look at him and you think, I wouldn't mind him in our midfield right now. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be quite nice. That's one of the things that surprised me a lot is that 
we know how how they were going to play. Obviously, we've had had them watched, and they're they're in that place in the in division for for no good reason. So we know what Norwood's all about. So why did we go with two in midfield, where one of them you think has at least got to watch him, but then that leaves you so exposed for the rest of midfield. So it's a real funny one why we we lined up the way we did. I mean, I can understand we're we're trying to play off the front foot a little bit and, and be a little bit more adventurous in the four four two. But at, to what cost when you know our defence is so porous as well? It, it it didn't really make much sense to me. I don't, I don't know what you guys thought. It, yeah, I mean, what do you think, George, on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'd have been tempted to bring to bring Kelly in to that to that sort of deeper midfield role again. I think. Um, I mean, just looking at some other individual performances as well. I mean, I'm at loathe to sort of criticise him, but I think we needed a lot more from Danny Loder the way we were, the way we sort of uh, shaped up for the game. I mean, he was kind of operating in that little space behind McNulty, wasn't he? Um, and I thought when I thought in the first half particularly, he showed some nice touches and some good close control when he got the ball into feet, but he he just let the game pass him by a bit too easily, and he he just really needs to to try and stamp his authority on it. And maybe that obviously that will probably come with time. Um, but yeah, I thought Bakuna, Arinamotra, uh, I thought again showed some 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 good stuff, but but I think he was counteracted a bit more this time by some sloppy errors. I think his passing was quite erratic, including the one to Bakuna and the build up to Sheffield United's first goal. Um, I think he had one poor clearance on McGoldrick's disallowed goal as well, and a couple of silly fouls that he was he was booked for in sort of key areas. Um, but yeah, I think I think I'd have been tempted to bring Kelly back into that. Back, back into that midfield, and I, and I think you you may well see that on Saturday, uh, particularly if Scott Marshall's uh, still in charge. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, if we're going to Rotherham, uh, we we they are a tough team to beat at home, and they've only had one defeat at home all season. So, anyone who thinks they're going to go there and get three points easily, um, no, I don't think so. I don't think there's any team that we can beat easily in this league, as we showed against Ipswich. We can struggle against absolutely any team. Uh, I mean, for the goals, you just think it just summed it up that we saw a score a comedy own goal. I mean, it just kind of summed up the whole. It just the players just dropped dropped off for about sixty five minutes. You could see that mentally and physically, it was just too much for them. They just couldn't deal with it. Maybe if you want to be kind of kind to them, you could say the events of the week. It's draining. It seemed to have a particular effect on the younger players. You were saying Loda and Rinomota. They definitely dropped off in the second half. 100%, you could see that. I mean, obviously, both of them are young, especially Danny Loder, only 18. But you could sense it was coming, and he just wanted that full-time whistle to come. And as soon as the goal came, we could have all just gone home again, which I seem to say every single week on this podcast. <laughs> it's just... One of the most depressing things about it is just I, I sort of left the ground wanting to blame a lack of commitment, wanting to blame a lack of determination, yeah. or to really scapegoat someone in particular. But in reality, it just felt like, it was such a painful, obvious lack of quality, yeah. the lack of creativity or any ingenuity. I mean, we were so short on intensity. I mean, Sheffield United in that second half um, sort of kind of like, kind of felt a bit like everything we used to be and everything we, you know, would want to aspire to be. You know, they, they were aggressive, they were disciplined, you know, they were really well drilled with a team that's been assembled on a budget. I think... I think I obviously didn't watch it on telly, but I think someone said there was a stat that their whole team cost less than our defence or something like that. Something. Yeah. Their, yeah. Um, their yeah. team cost five million, and four of that was John Egan. Yeah, wow. exactly. I mean, and 
old to have a manager like Chris Wilder as well, because he said, you know, at half time he made a tactical switch. He, he brought on Mark Duffy, um, obviously brought on Billy Sharp sort of on the hour mark, and that sort of really changed their fortunes. But he also said that he, you know, had a few harsh words with them at half time. And he just strikes me as a manager who is so good at getting a reaction out of players, so good at changing a game when it needs to be changed. And we, we are just so, so desperate for a manager of that. Of that yeah, ilk. I totally agree. We're just passive uh, all over the place. With the manager, we just wait and wait and wait. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of averse to criticise Scott Marshall as well because he's a bit of a rabbit in the headlights, really. He's not used to that kind of attention and pressure. But that's happened for a long time. That happened, yeah, under Yapstam, and it's happened under Paul Clement as well. I mean, the substitutions, which I said before, just take so long to happen. It's, it's, tactically, we're just so slow. But so hopefully the next person who will come in will be a little bit more up to speed on that. I mean, who knows? Who knows at that moment? We're going to come on to that in a bit. But I just like you were saying, George, the lack of quality all over the pitch from us. You can't pick out one player who was poor in that second half. It was all 11, really. Uh, it, just all of them. I mean, Jacola, he let the ball go out twice for corners and it, what was that all about? It was so easy to pick it up. There was a blacket back pass when Jacola was nowhere near him. <laughs> just kind of, the whole thing was breaking and you could see it in front of your eyes. That's why it's so painful. It's because we've all been through the script so many times. And this was the worst in some ways. I don't know why. It's because we've had the change. So you had a little bit of enthusiasm. Whether you thought it was right or wrong to remove Paul Clements, it was actually worse than before. Because at least in the last few games of Paul Clements reign at home, you saw some effort, you saw some determination against Bristol City, Hull, Millwall. Those games against Stoke, you just saw a team that did have some fight in them. There was no fight in that second half, really. I mean, it was I, horrible. Sorry, I think that, um, I, I do think that, that Clement was backed by the players. Um, and whilst the results weren't going in that much of a fabled direction, they were kind of going somewhere. Um I, I thought that when they they came out for that second half, it looked like they were confused with messages from one manager to another manager, albeit obviously Marshall's just giving a slightly different instruction. But it looked like they got confused very quickly and the belief, whatever belief they did have, just got sapped. And it just felt as if they just got very tired and very leggy. Um, and I just think it's that lack of belief that you know really kind of did for them in that, they couldn't compete with a side like Sheffield that are well drilled. They know what they're all about. They know, you know, where their their counterparts are going to be on the field, and and we were just outmanoeuvred. It, as you said, we, we felt like a a lower league side battling against a, a higher echelon team. And I think individually and collectively, they'd lost that belief that Clement might have given them a little bit. Uh, and to have that kind of rug from pulled under you that Clement's gone when they kind of thought, well, we're doing enough to keep him in a job, even if we're not really pulling up any trees. I think it kind of scuppered them a wee bit and, and confused them of, of what they were actually, uh, you know, trying to trying to play for. Were they trying to play for themselves, Scott Marshall, Paul? And it just didn't seem to feel as if they were a team anymore. It, it went to the dark ages of last season where it looked like, 11 men had just met each other on a field on a Sunday and said, let's have a game of football, see what happens. It felt like that. It felt so disorganised and, and so uh, bereft of any kind of belief, I think. 
And it's sort of, um, I don't know if I was reacting to it too emotionally at the time, but we've had worse, obviously much worse results than that over the last few years, you know, like the Ipswich 4-0, which I thought we were going to see a repeat of uh, at the end there for a little while. Um, we, you know, we've had worse results. We've probably had worse 90-minute performances over the last few years. But for some reason, just sort of walking away from that game felt like a real low over the last few years. I mean, the fact that it was on TV, I mean, it's it's embarrassing not to have a shot on target or even a chance um, at this level against any team at home, really. Um, you know, you go back through the highlights and I, I don't know if you see, I haven't seen one single highlight when I've been catching up uh, back with the game, you know, on Sky and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think you can, it was more of a collective effort, but I think certain in, individuals as well i mean i think saturday marked the end of me calling for josh sims to be <laughs> to be starting every week uh i mean it's it's hard to blame him too much i guess because he's very in and out i mean this this was only his third start i think but i mean to say he uh missed the opportunity would be a little bit of an understatement yeah um, no he did definitely did not grab his uh, opportunity at all i mean i i'm one who'd like to see sims start as well so you're not alone on that george don't feel yeah, don't yeah. feel stranded <laughs> I, I don't want to pick him out either because i think he's actually been one of our better players this season but the fact that leandro bakuna is our captain at the moment tells you i think all you need to know about the, the sort of leadership levels that exist within this current squad Yes, yes. Uh, erratic is the word, <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, kind of also the stadium, which is Saturday and it's on TV and there's no one there. I don't blame anyone for not going at all because where's the motivation? There really isn't. And it's not because we suddenly have only got 8,000 people going. It's because season ticket holders can't be bothered to make the effort. <laughs> so how much more condemning can that be? of a team that you must have been so poor for that long that they can't even, but they've paid to go and they still don't want to go. So it is the whole thing is just disheartening. You, I left there. I mean, I watched the second half back yesterday and yeah, uh, I, I have no idea why I did that to myself, but I think I had to do it, look through it. And I think as madness, yeah, I did have alcohol in the evening. I have to admit that, but it wasn't the only reason, but it's kind of, oh, it was so depressing. Just watching it, we just did not go forward at all. At that, all. That picture of uh, the owner's box was sort of the only thing that's raised a chuckle from me over the last few days. <laughs> the guy just sort of let out asleep. asleep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so lucky. What a lucky man. We all wanted to be that person asleep during that game. And you just wake up and you go, oh, it's another 2-0 defeat. And you think, oh, it's just the same as normal. You, don't, you wouldn't have realised how bad it was. <laughs> So, yeah. So, after Joe Bridget before the match, Nigel Howe was talking about the managerial situation and saying that there was a 10 list, 10 on the list, possibly. Then one up to 30 and saying that there was no one leading uh, person in the race and um, hadn't decided who he was going to appoint yet. Hopefully, by the end of the week, we'd have uh, more news on it. This was slightly contrary to the news that we had from Charles Watts the day before uh, from uh, football.london saying that uh, we have got a big target and his name is Luis Castro. His name had come out before, but what name we hadn't known, which was uh, a bit of a bombshell, I have to say, and I feel a little bit like Alan Partridge saying it like that, <laughs> was that Keir Jarratan is the person heading up 
the talks with Luis Castro in Portugal. Um, he was involved with us two years ago, and he was the person who brought in Ole John, uh, Piazzon, Hurtado. So he has previous, he has also has got previous links with Nigel Howe. So it, it's very confusing how the two events are happening or has been suggested by people that maybe Nigel Howe wasn't necessarily giving the full information that he knew to Radio Berkshire. It was rather a holding position. What would you say on that, George, possibly? Yeah, I think we, we kind of discussed it a little bit before we mm. came on air, didn't we? And it was kind of, I'm not sure, maybe the club are just paying a little bit of lip service uh, to the local media, you know, to make, you know, to, to make it look like they they definitely are considering more than one candidate. Uh, and maybe the, the Portuguese reports are a little bit overblown or the timescale might be a little bit inaccurate. Um but yeah, it kind of or unless there's just one faction is being trusted to take care of the the Castro Portuguese uh, sort of angle, and the and the guys on the ground here are just sort of doing due diligence almost over some more domestic options. You know, the Gareth Ainsworth, you know, uh, Slavisa Djukanovic, you know, those sort of options, just in case they can't come to an agreement with Castro, or or whether he backs out or or something like that. But it. Kind of some of the reports as well have been saying that we've had people in Portugal for a while and there was a thing about us approaching uh, Miguel Cardoso before he took the reins at Celta Vigo. And it kind of just makes you think, I was, I think I was discussing this with uh, Math on Twitter the other day, and it kind of makes you think who is driving this Portuguese yeah. angle because the time frame sort of harks back to, that harks back to when Gaule was still there. Um, so yeah, and and we were saying that given that Howe and Drabchen have, have worked together before, it's difficult to imagine that they are competing in any way yeah. for the owner's attention. So it's not one man saying, oh, you should really appoint him, but but the others here saying, oh, no, you should appoint him. Mm -hmm. um, it seems very strange that Howe would take the job if he wasn't comfortable with this yeah. sort of influence, given that Drabchen has been at the last, well, allegedly been at the last few home games. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's it's a difficult one to sort of um, to sort of work out. Yeah, no, it's we're kind of in this uh, mixed messages. Um, I do feel a little bit Nigel Howe with his uh, comments to Radio Berkshire on Saturday was a little bit of also re-engaging with the local press as well as that element as well because obviously with the Ron Gorlo situation, there's been uh, virtually a blackout on any press with the media uh, locally, which I didn't think serves them very well at all from the club's point of view. But, you know, I just... Kirchajan is a person who has an interesting background. Let's just put it that way. He started with his uh, introduction into football, really, was in 2004 with Corinthians when he bought uh, into a partnership with them. Which meant that he got 51% of any future sales from uh, sales from Corinthian players. Um, he then the Corinthians actually cancelled that deal in 2007 due to issues which I don't want to go into because that's a highly legal situation and um, yeah, I just don't want to go there basically. And uh, also. He's been involved with QPR most recently. He was at for QPR. He was also involved as a football advisor at Newcastle. 
And Mark, kind of slightly interesting, I find, he was also involved with Inter Milan, who also have Chinese owners. And in 2016, Roberto Mancini, who was sacked that year from Inter Milan, his son commented that the main force and reason that he was sacked, his dad was sacked at Inter Milan, was Keir Jiaochan. He said that he was the leading person there and his father, Roberto Mancini, had no say on any transfers in and out. It's a very complicated situation with Keir Jiaochan. He has many limited companies uh, of multiple uses. He's not a football agent, so anyone who calls him a football agent is incorrect. He advises players on their legal rights and clubs on their legal rights and transfer deals and contracts and how to deal with them. He is not a football agent. So anyone who says that he is dealing with the football agent side of Redden Football Club is not correct. He's kind of in between the lines. He's this kind of, he's kind of like a number 10. <laughs> he's kind of, I can't work out how to explain him. How would you explain his position, George? Role, isn't there, really? Yeah. Um, I think we were saying this before. He's 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 not an agent in the way that people think. He's often mentioned, you know, in this super agent category with Jorge Mendes, you know, the Mino Raiola, Pini Zahavi, those sort of people. And while I think he is as well connected and as powerful as some of those people, you know, you know, he's an advisor, isn't he? Like you said, he's a he's he's a transfer dealer. He's a you know a fixer, a broker, intermediary, mediator, whatever you want to call him. He's, he's the guy that clubs call when they know that they can't just ring up another club um, straight away and say, oh, I want, you know, he was massively involved in the Philip Coutinho <laughs> yeah. in January to Barcelona. You know, you know, he's he's kind of the guy that you who helps to oversee this kind of thing. And he's he's very held in important sort of esteem by clubs and players because he, you know, it has to be said off his own back has put together an extremely uh, influential and sort of wide-ranging network. Um, I think he's he's sort of been involved in, obviously, the Carlos Tevez thing as well is, was how he first sort of, I think you mentioned, came to significance in this country. Um, but, you know, you've got Coutinho, like we said, uh, Oscar, David Luiz, a load of, a load of those sort of deals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing with Drabchin a little bit is that... Um, I guess I guess what is the what is the end game for sort of Luis Castro with this? I mean, is it what's what's the attraction for the job from his point of view? Is I mean, is it just money? I mean, is it is he thinking that maybe if he if he got in here, then he might and if he turned things around, he might be able to put himself in the in the shop window for a Premier League job? Um, so yeah, I mean, and there's surely there's no chance he would stay if we went down. Um, it's just kind of. And all this stuff about the money he'll have to spend over the next couple of windows. How does that sit with sort of the FFP stuff? Yeah, uh, It's just all sort of a little bit confusing at the moment, isn't it? So it's we- totally confusing. I mean, when you see stories that we probably all saw over the weekend, about £100 million for him to spend over the next two windows, you think, um, wh- where's, where's this world? <laughs> where's this parallel world that you think... I can't see that happening. Also, probably on, was it allegedly be on wages of 11 million a year? And you think, yeah, I mean, I don't blame him. I mean, he's a 57-year-old, uh, Lewis Castro. So he's a young man in the managerial world. So it's an opportunity of a lifetime to cash in, essentially. I'm not saying, I mean, that's not a bad motivation if people are motivated by money. 
that's okay, but I'm not sure. I mean, it just seems like a, a very unusual situation, but once you involve people with the profile of Keir Churchan, you're, you're in a whole new spectrum of people. I mean, the people's, the, the deals that he has had are quite sensational. The links that he's got in football, I can see why the owners are a little bit in awe of him. And you could see how that could happen. Multiple clubs have been uh, dazzled by him because he, he can pull in people from anywhere. Obviously, if he comes to Reading, we're not be getting these massive players. But even if you'll be able to get in players of five, six million that would never have come here before, it's the motivation of these players. They What are they going to be here for? And as we've seen at QPR, it clearly didn't work. It was catastrophic. I mean, how do you feel about it now, the thought of Keir Jarrett? I think, I think if, we, if we kind of join all the dots together, what happened from last week from Clement and Howe and Nanny leaving and all of those things, it, it, it all seems to be a huge set of dice that's being rolled, doesn't it? In that they can't have one without the other. They couldn't retain the old guard and bring the, the, the likes of Castro and Drabchan in. You couldn't you couldn't have them both simultaneously. It just didn't wasn't really going to work. So well the, the I can understand the theory of like replacing old and new. It just depends on what that new is and whether we can trust it and whether it's you know, going to work. Obviously nobody knows what any of anything is going to work even if we went down a very safe route. But to go for the likes of a the 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 super connected um guy that Kia is can we get players in as you say that wouldn't normally come here but what's their what's their motivation in trying to help a, a partially you know relegated club if you want to put it that way what's in it for them why would they come here are, are we just going to get some very expensive loans in again and you know hope for the best but then you kind of look at it the other way and you go well what have we got in our locker that we are scouting for that we were going to get in in January anyway? And would they be good enough to get us out of the predicament? So it's risk and reward. And are the owners playing a very, very risky game in trying to get some very established, possibly you know European players to come over here for six months to get us out of this pickle that we're in? It doesn't. It doesn't sit well with us traditionally of how Reading is going to work but if they're thinking that we're in dire trouble and we're, we're going to need exceptional firefighters to get us out of it is that the angle that they're aiming for I don't know it's yeah it's, it's a, oh, I find it concerning myself I've got nothing to really base that on I just like to say it's all alleged things with Kirchner I find it really I mean, that's my major thing is I think we've jumped out of the wrong Gourley world and now we've gone into another place that just concerns me as well. Yeah. Well, I, I was hoping with, with the Nigel Howe appointment that we'd have a bit more stability. And some people might say that's a bit boring and going back to, you know, the Reading way, as people say. But, God, I crave stability and just kind of... Maybe that's what we, we lured ourselves into, though. In that we thought, well, with with how coming back, and him being, you know, a very large cornerstone in our history, when times were good, we, we kind of think that we're going back to that. Whereas his view might be, we know we got to effectively speculate to accumulate, 
Yeah. And whether that's speculating over a short term or a longer term, we don't know yet. But the, I think the thing that kind of worries me a little bit with Castro, if he does come in, is that why would they choose Castro when he hasn't got any experience in this division, probably hasn't got that much experience in getting a, you know, a team threatened with relegation out of the mire? And what can he possibly offer us when he's not a, a, a name that's known in, in this country and the way the championship works? You kind of think, well, if we're going to go for high risk and high reward, you'd go for someone who's got a, a you know an established name in this country and then ply players that he can he can mould, that he might know, and then get yourself out of trouble that way. But we seem to be like, you know, going hell for leather in, in changing things around very quickly with no method behind it. I think the key point is, and I kind of think you both referenced it there, is it the Castro appointment, if it happens, and indeed if it does come with the Drabchen influence like it's been reported, it kind of feels like it flies in the face of so much of the rhetoric that has come out of the club over yeah. the last week. Uh, particularly with the obviously, like we said, with the Howe reappointment and the, and the statement about sacking Clement and the Reading mould and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I know how you know he he's. I think you've mentioned this before, Paul. Is he he knows that the Reading way, the way it used to work, cannot work like that anymore, and he knows that it needs to be adapted to sort of fit the game now. Um, and there are you know there are a lot of clubs going down this route, um, mm. connecting themselves with you know with very high profile people like Drabjian. Um But yeah, it, it kind of just feels like something that if we were plodding along in mid-table in desperate need of a bit of an injection of something to get us, you know, into the top six, or then this would be a route that they could go down. But like we are at the moment in the bottom three, it just feels like such, such an enormous gamble. Um, I mean, to be fair to Castro, I mean, he's he seems to be... You know, I'm not going to talk too much about someone that I freely admit to never really having heard of before sort of three or four days ago. Yeah. But from the bits and pieces, <coughs> you know, on Twitter from Portuguese journalists and from fans of the club, seems very highly rated. Um, does seem to uh, does seem to generally get clubs performing above their level, sort of punching above their weight a little bit, which would which would obviously be good for us. But but I mean, it just seems like he would need time to. To, to introduce his brand of football, I mean, and he would need a lot of patience over the long term. And whether we like it or not, the next person who comes in will have to make an impact. You know, it just has to happen because otherwise, you know, we're going to go down and we're going to be in we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't seem to just doesn't seem to fit with with everything that's been said over the last over the last week or so, really. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, this is why I find it unsettling that you just think, I kind of felt there was a path that was being built slowly with the owners, with Howe, getting rid of Gourlay and all of his sidekicks there and all his associates that he's put into the club. And then all of a sudden, it, it's gone. I mean, if you look at an example of Gianluca Nani, which you brought up before, George, it, it's kind of been Charles Watts saying that he was forced out, essentially, by Keir Jashan. So he's kind of... He's clearly had it, been there for a while involved. I know he said he was at the last two games, but suddenly he must be a very powerful voice to the owners. And that is, I don't know. It's hard to know if it's going to be a worry because like you say, it could work. It could work. But it feels like a really desperate last throw of the dice. 
even Nadal and... himself said in his his uh, goodbye statement that uh, the club are going in a different direction. Yeah. Mm. So it almost seems that yeah. you know they did have a maybe a slightly longer term plan before, um, and then they've just gone on an absolute U turn on everything, yeah. and you know get rid of this car, get a brand new one faster, look swankier. Uh, let's see where we go. You know, it just seems now it's sea change. The other thing is, as well, is that it's all very well saying we're going to have X amount of money to spend in January. But, I mean, there is so much deadwood that needs to be cleared out of this squad before we can even think about starting to add more players to it, even, you know, even on loan or whatever. We, The first task will be, you know, will be to get shot of players. And who is going to take these players at the moment? I've got absolutely no idea. And if they do get rid of them, it's in January particularly, it's probably only going to be loans, isn't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, having said that, if Sonia Oloko moves out of the club this window and Keir Chowcham is the person who's managed to do that, <laughs> wow, his popularity is going to soar <laughs> massively, isn't it? He's going, to, yeah. he's going to be the most popular man in RG1, isn't he? It's quite incredible. But yeah, you're right. We've got so many players. I'm going to do my uh, weekly mention of David Edwards. Um, he just, he's still there. And I don't know. <laughs> He does have to do it every week now until he goes. It's just a thing. I mean, yeah, it's just so many players. You've got to move players out. But I mean, if you're going to be spending the money that, I mean, even if we spend 10%, if we, I'd be amazed if we spend, you know, 10 million. If we spend 10 million in the window, you've got to think you've got a chance of staying up if you spend it wisely. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. It just seems so far in those numbers, 100 million. I just can't see any of that happening with Reading. But once you involve Keir Jaracham at a senior level, things change. Things can change. I mean, even we saw that with the ties, with the players that they brought in in that window. You just think he does, he's got this ability to bring players in. So you can't rule anything out completely with him. You really can't. He's got an amazing. You know, how many can we ship out and how many can we get in and how many is too much? Because even though the team that we've got at the moment is barely recognisable as a functioning unit, if you mess around with it too much, you've just got a, a, another mess, not even the same mess you had before, you've got a different mess. If they don't get cohesive with each other, then you, you're still going to be struggling for results. So <laughs> there, there's a fine line now between what Castro or whoever the new manager and his ideas are going to be, and the, the players that we're going to bring in. Yeah, I mean, it's just a... If I mean, if we're going to bring in happen. Castro, are we going to see an influx of Portuguese players? I mean, it could well happen, couldn't it? It would be this... I mean, it's, I don't know if it's sensible, but it would be kind of... I can see the logic behind it. If you're going to bring in a manager from Portugal who has been in Portugal all of his career managing and through the academy systems and at Porto... Yeah, kind of, I mean, it's not a terrible market to be going into, but it's definitely not a cheap one. And <laughs> that's for certain. That's the key point. You have to have the money and the plan to execute it properly, like Wolves have. Um, you, you cannot sort of half ass it, really. It has to be, you know, it has to be done properly. Yeah. Um, and I have my doubts whether we would, we would do it properly. I mean, yeah. I think, I think uh, Castro's sort of record of, in sort of the Porto Academy, I saw somebody talking about how he sort of laid the foundations for a lot of the players that have come out of that. Obviously, Porto have got a great record on that front, which kind of makes me feel 
sort of positive in the sense that he won't maybe come in and immediately abandon the, you know, the sort of Andy Renamotta's Danny Loder kind of thing. But then if he's if he's getting in a load of high profile players, possibly will he will he have to in the end? Um I don't know. I mean, it just feels like Reading need an experienced manager with some influence, with some clout. We don't need the talented wannabe sort of coaches. We need a, we need we do need a decent tactician because I think Clement was some team uh, some managers rang rings around Clement in that in that sense this season. I don't think there's any question about that. We just need someone like I was saying with Wilder before, someone who can really impact games they can impact the mood and they can impact the confidence you know particularly when things aren't going his team's way um you know and maybe Castro can do that I mean I don't want to hark on too much about not speaking the language and such like that because I'm not so worried about that as well yeah because yeah. it hasn't affected you know the yeah. Mauricio Pochettino's of the world you know Marco Bielsa um but you just think in the short term will he be able to get his message across enough to sort of really impact upon confidence and really impact upon sort of mood. I'm not so sure. Um, do we do we like any of the other candidates, if indeed we are pursuing the other candidates that have been bandied around the last couple of days? I mean, I personally, if we could attract uh, Slavisa Djokanovic, yeah. that's the number one target. Whether we could actually get him and he'd want to come here is a different matter, but that's a completely logical choice, isn't it, really? I mean, he's got two teams promoted. And not only that, playing really great football. What he's done in the Premier League is irrelevant because you have to get there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that was a nice problem. If we get to that issue, you say, yeah, OK, we'll deal with that. But, yeah, Djokanovic for me, what do you say now? Yeah, absolutely. He's He would be the, the perfect candidate, really. Um, geographically, fine. League knowledge, exemplary. The way he plays football, ticks all the boxes for us um it is the cost and whether he's absolutely interested in us the first place is is the other thing isn't it um given the, the position that we're in obviously we're not really that much of an attractive prospect for many managers you'd think um unless you are going to flood cash at it but whether he thinks that that it fits his his style his remit um or even whether the, they're even going to approach a cannabis nobody knows um, well, we hear an awful lot about a shortlist, but you know, a shortlist is, is just a, a list of names on a sheet. You, you've either got to go out for these players, or they're going to have to uh, manage us, or they're going to apply. Um, there's two situations, isn't there? So maybe Jokanovic isn't on the club's list at all. It sounds to me like uh, Sheffield Wednesday are now in the Steve Bruce, <laughs> I think is probably a better opportunity over the long term. Um, I don't know about you, but I've kind of been talking myself into Gareth Ainsworth a little bit today. I could feel that, George, just before yeah. we started. I can feel you got a little poster of him now, haven't you? <laughs> because I think a lot of people, um, and I've seen this a bit online, some people still assume, I think, without looking at the lower leagues very much, that Wickham are sort of in League Two, but they're, they're ninth in League One. Yes. Uh, no, no, it's not a totally logical idea at all. Yeah, I mean, he's a, lo- you know, he's a relatively local guy. I mean, he's done a really good job. I mean, he obviously has a lot of experience of getting the most out of sort of a small budget. He seems to have, you know, built a really, like I said, a really strong rapport with fans and players. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of people talking about the Nathan Jones, Danny Cowley sort of class of manager, that younger manager that's done really well at lower league level, yeah. uh, without really mentioning him until sort of the last couple of days. But... 
ultimately, if it's not Castro at this stage, I'll I'll be very surprised. But uh, but yeah, yeah same here. It seems to be heading in that direction. But I mean, I think people just dismissing Gareth Ainsworth, like you say, I think is pretty. It's without looking at the facts of Hill. I think it's a little bit unfair. He's done very well at Wickham. I mean, I'd much rather have Gareth Ainsworth come in than an ex-player. I, I'm not really feeling that at all, especially with Parkinson. I'm not really sure on that myself. I can see the identity. I can see that would be a big thing to help the team. And I know he's been linked, according to certain people, and he is on this list. But I don't know. For me, he doesn't really... I wouldn't want him to come back and risk losing his legacy that he had with us. And I don't look at his uh, record and think it's so much better than what we've currently had, as in Paul Clement. Obviously, we need the manager now, but I don't know. I'm just not convinced. And yeah, Gareth, I'd, I'd much rather have Gareth Ainsworth. I think he lives in Marlow. So he's very local, isn't he, obviously? So, yeah, I mean, if you just look at where um, uh, Castro's been, he's the main one. He's been at Chavez. He's been at Porto. He's obviously now at Vittoric de Gramas. He's had 42% win rate. He likes to play a 4-3-3, but this season he's played a 4-1-4-1. This is all stuff that I've read. I don't actually know all of this, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, one of your bedrooms, right? I am actually Luis Castro's illegitimate son, because I'm not. <laughs> Paolo. This is kind of... But, you know, I looked it up because, you know, people want to know some basic outlines. But when you took over a Porter, though, in the 16 games that he had there after one of their managers left, he had nine wins out of 16. So he, he, that strikes me as a manager who can adapt to a situation. I know Porto are a good team in Portugal, so they probably win a lot of games anyway. So, but, you know, it doesn't strike me as someone who was completely caught in the headlights at all. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. I just hope whatever is going to happen is done soon. And I do not want to go into after the Rotherham game, still without a manager and Scott Marshall still being there. It needs to be sorted one way or another because you don't want it to be left in this flux because that's worse than having Paul Clement, if you ask me, by a long way. Mm. The timing would just suck. And that's my one criticism of this situation now is that we clearly didn't have anyone lined up. Normally clubs... Mm. Yeah, go on, George. That's what baffles me. I cannot believe that they... That's why I think that it is Castro and it has always been Castro because I just cannot see why they would have sat Clement at that time without thinking, right, we've got this guy, you know, we've got this guy lined up. He'll be in by next week. I mean, I guess, I guess the only reason would be that they'd utterly, utterly lost faith in Clement and that if they knew if they waited until after the Sheffield United game and if we won that game, then obviously it would be much harder to get rid of him. Um, you know, it'd be much more unpopular to get rid of him after a win like that. Um, but yeah, that's, I just can't, see how they would have done it without a plan. I mean, this Rotherham game feels like such an important game already this season that the thought of going into it, you know, nothing against Scott Marshall, but the thought of us going into it without a permanent manager, it terrifies me, to be to be honest. Uh, yeah, no, I'd be worried about it even with Clement, though, as well. Because yeah. Rotherham, uh, I mean, one home defeat all season. I mean, that is an impressive record for a team that's only 20th. Yeah. Their one defeat was to Hull, which is yes. uh, slightly bizarre. I mean, it was in August as well. They've won. Uh, they've only lost one of their last nine matches, and that was at Norwich. Yeah. Um, sort of a bit of draw specialists, aren't they? I think their away record is well documented. It's it's terrible at Championship level. It's yes. it's almost historically bad. I think. But you know, like you said, at home they've won 
four and drawn five, I think. Um, yeah, their home record would, if you look at just the home table, they'd be 14th, yeah. as in you separate that, as in just home farm. So yeah. that would be above where they are. I mean, it's just, uh, I find it a really, it's a real, like you say, George, it's such a massive game. If we were by some stroke of miracle able to get a win, it would just ease the pressure on the whole club. I just can't see it at this moment. And even if we appoint a new manager, I mean, the way that we disintegrated as a team in that second half against Sheffield United does nothing, absolutely nothing to fill me with confidence going into that Rotherham game because Rotherham will just walk all over us. <laughs> they will just steamroller us physically. Um, what do you think, Neil, about the game on Saturday? I think even if we get a manager in or not, it's going to be too soon really for, for whoever it is to have a, an influence but yeah that they, they do have to treat this game as if it's it's only a little bubble and they're just going to minimize you know any any mistakes that they can do play sensibly play counter-attacking football uh and see what happens um i, I don't think we, we're gonna have that many bodies back that we've had missing recently so it's yeah. likely to be the same again um, as you said, that their home form is is so good for a team that's you know very close to us, points wise. That it is so important. We we can't lose effectively. Yeah. I don't think that's definitely um, not lose. Yeah. If if we lose it, then it mentally and points wise, it, it's so damaging. Um, so yeah, we've got to get something out of it, and obviously the players know that more than we do. So. I, I can't see anything other than a defeat, really, because I don't think they're mentally strong enough. But it, if someone does come in and they can just give them some different messages, some different instruction, some simple, simple, you know, framework to go on that they can build with, that would be something. But you know, it's, I think it's going to be too soon for any manager, really. I mean, they're going to have to show some fight, a lot of fight that was obviously lacking in that second half against Sheffield United. I think. Yeah. I was- Twitter as well that I think uh, Rotherham have picked up seven points from nine I think against teams below them in the league great record yeah so yeah yeah, I mean there's you can't go there and be found wanting in sort of effort levels and stuff like that because you'll you'll get found out quite quickly just a quick aside speaking of not having bodies back did you see that thing about um, Saeed Ezzatelahi today called up to the Iran yeah yes next wait for the whole of January yeah. So that's delightful, isn't it? He misses uh, misses all this yeah. time through injury, and then he's potentially. I mean, I don't know if there's if there's a habit of players getting out of those sort of competitions or not. With places like Iran, I'm not sure. I would doubt. I would think it would be doubtful, um, considering yeah. he's got like fifty odd caps or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think the injury thing is something that you know we can't use it as an excuse. The, no. the injury list, but going into that game Saturday, it was just. You just got your one hand tied behind your back all the time with these injuries. They, I said at the time, it's easier said than done, but they have to try and get a handle on this because it's been going on for so long now. And to go into a game like that with with your two target men out against such a big defence, to have three centre-backs missing. I mean, we've had all sorts of goalkeeper injuries and stuff this season. It's just, I feel like at the moment, I mean, maybe this sounds silly, but I feel like at the moment this is as big an issue as the manager and stuff because it's just if they don't if they don't find a way through it, then I think it's going to sink them regardless of who comes in next. 
Mm. I, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. The situation with injuries is, is it's just unexplainable. We just had so many, and repeatedly, it's just and from players are out injured, they don't come back quickly. <laughs> it does not happen quickly. Yeah. I mean, and we've had multiple players out that you just think, where have they gone? I mean, I, I mentioned Dave Edwards earlier, but he's actually got an injury, but nobody knows what it is. And it seems to go on for months and months and months. I mean, there is the very famous case of Callum Harrett, obviously. No one knows what's going on there. And it could be perfectly legitimate why he's up two years. I remember when Graham Murty first came, he was out for 18 months or so. So they could be, but there's so many of them. There's so many players that it happens to. And it's just so frustrating. And one thing I will say about all the players that we've got up front, if you look at Loder, McNulty, and you've got Bulldog, all those players miss that other person up front with them, which would be Bodvarsson. They all need that other player. I mean, Mate, you could say could be a Bodvarsson type player, but he's not really. He's not quite experienced enough, I don't feel. So all those players that are playing there, that's a kind of hopeless task for them because they're not that type of player. We've got players playing there, like Loder. He was almost playing in midfield for the second half against Saturday. It was quite strange, the whole thing, what was going on. I just, I hope there's some kind of plan put into place that is, you can change with tactics throughout the match. Because I just see that continuously, George, which you totally agree with. You're just so slow and it's painful. We can all see it sat there, but they're not reacting to it. And yeah, I just find the whole thing frustrating. Yeah. Really frustrating. I think, I mean, if you could sum up Reading in one word, what would you say, Neil? Just one word to sum them up. God. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it. One sound. No, one sound. That's it. It's apocalypse. Like noise. <laughs> what would you say, George? Just one word to sum up Reading, really. Ah, uh, God. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? You need uh, 10. <laughs> chaotic. Uh, yeah. yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, hopeless at the moment. Um, yeah, hopeless. It's just so hard. It's just when you just think of it, it's just painful watching them. It's just the, the points of failure, isn't there? They're, yeah. There's just so, so many of them, and none of them are, are you can just paper over the cracks. That They're all deep and wounded in a, their own way, aren't they? There's, whether you call it mismanagement, bad luck, terrible training methods, bad coaching, <laughs> bad recruitment, whatever. All facets are awful. Um, there's no redeeming feature at the moment apart from, you could say, the academy. But, you know, how much of that does affect championship level? Not an awful lot if you've got a team that's got no confidence. I said, yeah. this, sorry, I said this on Twitter the other day, and it's just the owners deserve credit, and they have received credit over the last week or so for finally sort of seeming to wake up and pay attention to to how badly things are going and how badly things were being run um but i also think you know and they obviously deserve praise as well we haven't talked about this but subsidizing the tickets again for uh yes. for old trafford in january um but they also you know they deserve criticism too for just how just how bleak things have become um and you just wonder if this sort of sweeping out of of the old regime has has come too late in the day. Um, obviously, we hope not, but it's uh, it's hard to feel much optimism. I felt like there was optimism last week um, when all this was going on, you know, with Howe coming back. But then, sort of the Charles Watts report and then that performance on Saturday just feels like it's quickly got rid of any sort of upbeat feeling we might have had sort of in the middle of the next week. And it's it's uh, it's sad, really. Yeah. yeah. No, I feel worse now than I did before the Clement news. 
<laughs> it's amazing mm. I don't know how that's happened but yeah no I'm really glad you brought that because I totally agree the owners have um they kind of left everything to Ron Gourlay for way too long yeah and they've abdicate, abdicated kind of responsibility essentially and they went oh you get on with it Ron and now they're making a last ditch effort to kind of salvage the situation it's not too late obviously we've still got 25 games i think left so it's definitely not impossible to do it and we're not adrift so it is possible but you know i want to try and leave on a slightly high note it is still possible it's still possible we are not relegated do not give up don't blame me you know i'm trying to be good about this (laughs) oh dear well if you have enjoyed the show if you could do me a favor by giving uh, some ratings on itunes it would be appreciated if one star to five star oh i would prefer five i will be quite honest with you um just consider it your little bit of work that you can put in this uh 50th podcast i don't want to make you feel guilty but it has been quite a bit of work so if you can do that it would be absolutely great it helps with algorithms and dull stuff like that cheers thank you <laughs>